So, Parth, what have you been eating? Well, Trent, thanks for asking. Uh, I just finished some leftovers of Ethiopian food we ordered last night. What kind of food is Ethiopian food? Wow. I know. What what a mouthful. Quite quite literally in your case. Exactly. Uh, It's like um, there's bread and you eat it. You you eat like um, there's like a main, which is like chicken. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the sides, I got these two uh, different types of like cooked lentils. Um, And so you, you eat it with like. It's not bread, but it, it functions like bread. Well, as stimulating as that was, um, how would you say that, would you say lentils age well? Would you say second day lentil is your, is, is your preferred lentil? These kind turn out pretty well the next day. Uh, so, I mean, just speaking of like second day food, just to revisit like a classic argument of people who think that cold pizza is better than reheated pizza um let let me get your take on that that's wrong yes i'd agree i like to go on the record saying that that is 100 percent incorrect and that if you have pizza uh after its prime initial hotness put in the fridge then the next day you're gonna take it out of the fridge and then you're gonna put it in the toaster and then it'll be only a little bit worse than its original status rather than a lot worse of just that cold hard version that all of you seem so content to settle for trent what have you been eating i went to a bagel shop this morning um with our proud jewish friend tamara and she was talking about how her jewish heritage has she's a vegan as you may know but she says the one exception she makes is getting a bagel with locks on it and she says that that's like her inner her inner jew speaking and so she inspired me and so i thought let me get a bagel with locks too and so i ordered that and then we got into the car and as we were driving away i opened it up and i figured that when you ask for a bagel with locks just they figure that cream cheese is included in that deal also um, but apparently that needed to be specified. So um, I was sad because I just had like a fish bagel. And so I th- uh, my thinking was, oh, let me go home. Then I'll add the cream cheese and then it'll be some semblance of what I originally wanted. Get home. No cream cheese. Wasn't enough time to go to the store because we needed to record. Um, and then I thought I might as well just remove the fish. Try to include that in a future meal and then i just had i put butter and jelly on the bagel and just tried to to salvage the situation so i could get some nutrients in me so i could you know be like interesting while i chit-chatted with you is it working it's working a lot trent i'm really glad you did that thanks yeah i um just try to get like the best like fuel possible to really so we can come out here and perform Right, right, right. right because right. And, uh, something people don't know about podcasting is it's really more of like a sport. Yeah, I think we should get varsity. Like, if we did this in high school, we should have gotten like varsity jackets for it. We should have been like a little bit higher in the social status, which was difficult considering how high we already were. And since we've graduated from high school, and since we like no longer have any affiliation 
um, right. to, to yeah. one. I think it would be too – I think it would just be overkill to, like, re-enroll in high school and then advocate for podcasting to qualify for a letterman jacket. I just think it sounds like a lot of work. So I think the easiest solution would be for us to just go to a store where they make letterman jackets and then pay them and then make them an offer they can't refuse. Um to, to make a special order one. Sounds once. like a threat. Trent. Wait, but Parth, since we're in college, do you think we would look awesome wearing high school letterman jackets walking around campus? Or do you think people would think that we aren't awesome? No, 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 no. They think we're really cool. Perfect. Um, and on that note, let's cut let's cue the intro. Classic classic Trent. Nice. Alright. Cut it short, sweet, concise. And then scrape my cock and balls across the camera, and then we cue Whoa, the intro. Oh what the <laughs> fuck? Wait, what? Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their time working on the movie. This week we're talking about Doug Liman's Edge of Tomorrow. And with us, we have one of its costume modelers, Pierre Bohanna. What? Was this a good interview, Trent? Parth, this was one of my favorite interviews so far. Call me crazy. I, 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 I won't do that, Trent. Uh, solely because I agree with but you. When, but when you got the guy in front of you who designed the bat suit, you tend to be a little bit excited. You tend to ask questions about the bat suit for like an hour and 20 minutes. And then you tend to record yeah. it and then release it as a podcast episode. That's just usually what tends to happen. You get a couple of fun stories. You you hear about how the bat suit relates to like ancient armor Right? He talks about that? Yeah, we, we hear about some Nolan stuff. Uh, he, he actually talks about a lot of the directors that he worked with, and par- and there were visible parts popping over Parth and I's head. I mean, l- audio-based medium, so you're going to have to envision Parth and I. Um, yeah, so you get, you get a, a, a Chris Nolan story. You get to hear about Alfonso Cuaron, and... Um, you hear about our movie of the day. You get a Tom Cruise uh, recollection. So, um, do you think we should just cut right into it, Trent? Let's do it. Let's uh, let's cue the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Pierre Bohanna. He's worked on many films you've heard of, such as the Harry Potter franchise, the Star Wars franchise, Gravity, and Wonder Woman 1984. He was also the head of department prop maker and modeler for our film today, Edge of Tomorrow. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, very nice to meet you both. So we like to start off by just asking what introduced you to the film world and how'd you, how'd you get involved in the industry? It, I had a, I had a, uh, well, weirdly it kind of been, it's been, it was in and out of my life when I was a kid because my dad, um, periodically worked in, uh, in the film industry in the, in the seventies, uh, uh, 
and and to be honest, for the rest of his life. He originally he was a car designer, and he worked in motor racing in the sixties. He <clears throat> worked for uh, Lola's, for Penske's, Alamant, lots of lots of sort of companies there. And and um, when he was working at uh, for Penske's, he they built all what's called a running gear, which is basically underneath the. the underneath the skin kind of workings of a general car for Chitty Bang Bang. And he um, he met a uh, production designer, or well, an art director then, and became a production designer called Peter Lamont. And later on, many years later, he bumped into him. And Peter asked him to start to work on a film called A Spy Love Me, which is a James Bond film. Um, because he's seen what what the old man had been doing in, in sort of car industry and, and sort of got sucked in into it that way. And my dad at that point um, was looking for something sort of new and interesting and, and sort of pulled into that. So I, I kind of remember going around Pinewood Studios, you know, when I was I don't know, seven, eight years old, um, uh, seeing seeing the sets that were on the film and, and Pinewood then was kind of, there were so many, so many, never threw anything away. So there was like bits of, of sets of Cleopatra and, and I always remember there was, there was these, in a the corner, there was loads of these plants from Journey to the Centre of the Earth with all these big teeth, like a giant flight of Venus flytraps. And I remember, I think in my mum's loft somewhere, there's still some teeth that I nicked out of it that, that is in there. Anyway, so you kind of get, I was kind of, sort of gently exposed to it then um but i had the usual sort of went to school um and um uh and kind of just at the when i was coming to the sort of the end of that and thinking what to do i really wanted to take a year off <clears throat> and um uh could i be in a boarding school i i um hadn't spent an enormous time amount of time with my dad my dad at that point had moved back down to um the south coast of England and he'd gone back into the car industry he'd he'd, he'd um, met a, an American basketball player a guy called Will Chamberlain and they had really got drunk one evening and um, Will was complaining uh, that uh, he was too tall for his Lamborghini you know, first world problems um, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, wanted a car because he was seven foot two he said he was the third the third shortest player of the Harlem Globetrotters and anyway, he he um, he said that, uh, and the old man said, oh, "Well, I'll build you a car." Not thinking much of much of it. Anyway, that that proceeded to take take give or take the next fifteen years of his life. Um, so he was doing he was building on the south coast. They'd moved his family moved down to the south coast a couple of years before, and so uh, he'd taken on the workshop and and uh, was building a car there. So he. Uh, he was talking to me and I said, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And he said, well, look, come down, come down and work with me for a little while. Just take a bit of time, have a summer um, and see, see what happened. Anyway, the, within the first week I realized I, I was, I probably learned, felt I felt I hadn't, but I felt I'd learned more in that, that first week than I had in the last six months of being at school. So I just felt, absolutely fell into the sort of the, the, um, the kind of the, that that world of building things of just just being exposed to seeing what it takes to make something so i just and i suppose i still have that now really um so i i i very quickly um uh started an apprenticeship um uh with initially with my dad then i moved to another company that was building 
offshore powerboat race, racing boats. Learned about engineering. I learned about um, uh, boat building weirdly, and and uh, um, and uh, then into mold making and pattern making. Sort of it's fairly old analog skills. <clears throat> um, and and then proceed the next spend the next two or three years really learning that, and then. Uh, sort of life events and things changed and I moved up, I moved up to London and, uh, um, and, uh, started working for a, a company making massive display, uh, giant displays like giant telephones and, and washing up bottles that was put onto the side of hornings and all this kind of thing. Um, and, uh, uh and then we met one of my dad's friends, uh, up there just taking, he said, Oh, I'm working for this company. Can you come and give us a hand over the weekend? We just got, do you fancy a bit of extra money? I said, yeah, so I did. And Monday morning got offered a job and it was a company that did lots of um, uh, TV commercials and, and things like that. And the sort of in the eighties, there was a, a lot of in-camera stuff. There was a big boom in the, in the UK for, for doing TV commercials. So I, I, um, I moved there and that's really, I suppose how formally I got really got into, into sort of media. Um, and I was there, I was there for two, you know, two, three years. And after a while, you sort of go, go freelance. So I started working on, on TV productions. Uh, it was a, a quite a famous series in the UK. This called Spitting Image. It was a satirical comedy program that, that used uh, puppets. Um, and, uh, uh, so, uh, so, and worked there for a while. And that was, that was, um, that was a massive learning experience. Great, great fun. Lots of very clever people. Anyway, so you, and kind of once, once you kind of get into that world, you, you, it's very much uh, job by job. Um, like any TV or film work, it's, it's, you get, if you're doing well, really well, you probably get sacked about four times, obviously more if you're, uh, you know, four times a year rather. Uh, more than that, it's you know even more, and you go from job to job to job to job. Uh, so, and that's really how what I started doing, and and you uh, started doing small stuff on films, and then started uh, getting proper film uh, gigs. Worked on uh, things like uh, uh, Judge Dredd, a Stallone version of Judge Dredd, which um, and then uh, and things like that, and then and then got got um uh got a gig on on phantom menace um being one of the head prop makers there i was the first of sort of four guys that, that started making props <clears throat> on phantom menace and we uh we did the whole film i have to say having an absolute ball you know it was the i mean <laughs> uh many stories about that but you know it's, it's, um uh we we didn't realize what how it would be i suppose but we it was still it was still in lots of aspects it was still made in very much the same way the originals had we we had a massive room that they'd gone to aircraft breakers and and filled these rooms full of full of uh, all sorts of interesting objects and bits and bobs and we we'd get to to make stuff you know you just come in and go well i need a pair of binoculars um uh, we've got you've got like four hours to make a pair of them. so you just go and you five bits and you put things together and and it was very like, it was very like that it was it's very it's sort of nice sort of creative creative work to do so 
could you describe, I mean, you just talked about your time as a prop maker in Phantom Menace. So can you just talk about like the general responsibilities of a prop maker, like on a day-to-day basis? Like, obviously you have to make props, but elaborate. Yeah, it's it, it's so, the interesting thing about films is that each, certainly from our aspect, is that every single film is different. And I suppose that's an obvious way, but it's also different in the way that way that props are made and 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 every sort of department uh, provides work. So Star Wars was interesting because it was it was you know sorry Phantom Menace rather was interesting because it was it was on a it was on the cusp of of really sort of those very intensive uh, visual effects movies. You know because George owned ILM, he was really pushing that technology. And it was, you know, Phantom Menace was, a, you know, the first of the three prequels was was his proper baby. If you think that the previous, you know, the first three films were different film companies, etc., and, and he was very much the the, um, the working director, but, you know, the, the, these three were very much him. So his, his you know, completely in his control. So... Um, it was kind of interesting seeing how that that sort of influenced things and, and uh, what have you. But we, but it was still it was still very, um, uh, it was still very imbued, and the, the sort of the art the art department layer was still very intensively made and and visualized in a physical way. So, so so you had sort of levels of 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 building really. You had very very refined specific designs of certain objects you know like I don't know, lightsaber or something that was a very specific or, or um, um, the pod racers were initially very you know very drawn out you know, drawn and illustrated and art directors would would uh, you know come and work with us about uh, building stuff and then other things were done much looser so again pod racers when we when i did the anakin's pod you'd you'd have particular drawings of certain items that were in there and then there were basically gaps and you just fill them in with business and say bits and bobs that you could find and just just sort of run with the design um uh, and that was that was a kind of the whole feel of how they got the sort of feel of star wars because that's so much like it was done before um but it's you you know to other films like I mean Harry Potter was 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 completely other extreme. Every single item that we made on there was was completely uh, debated and drawn and illustrated and went through a whole process of design and um, approval. Uh, right, you know, right, you know, some of the stuff we even went back to uh, uh, Joe to to get her her visual uh, input into it. So it was a lot more. It was a lot more, uh, as I say, a lot more intense, I suppose. In the way it is. But as I say, every every film is a, is a, in a political sense is a is a is a different structure of people going about how they want the film made. Pivoting a little bit to the main topic of the episode, uh, how did you get involved with Edge of Tomorrow? And just another side question. Do you spend any time on set, or are you sort of relegated to um, creating things and then showing it to the people that will bring it on set? Yeah, I mean, again, every film's different. I try. I personally, I try and avoid set because it's not it's not my primary place to be. Um, I do, you know, to the, I I am there on there regularly, but I'm normally within 
check something's okay. Uh, you know, if we're showing stuff to the director or, or need to talk to an actor about uh, a certain item. If obviously if you're doing costume making, then then sometimes that gets that gets a, a little bit more uh, intense. Um, and I might will have one of my staff guys standing by with stuff when we're doing things, but it's not, it's not, it's, uh, I mean, frankly, I find it a little boring. It's just, you know, once you're, once you're, once you're there and once you stand there, you know, I have done before standing there watching filming for a day or two, you just get numb feet, cold, you eat too much chocolate, uh, you eat, you drink too much coffee, um, you talk rubbish for too much, long, you know, it's just like, it's not, it's not, it's not a primary place where, where the prop making goes. So, so it's, it's, um, uh, but that's you know that's me that's 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 because I do something else. Um, other people, I'm sure, would have a ball. You know, if you're a cameraman, that's the place you, you're going to be. So, uh, I, I'm just asking, like, how one goes from, like, are, are you freelance and you have your own warehouse uh, and like the studio like approaches you, or how how like how do you go from one project to another, basically? Yeah, I mean, to, we to, in the UK that is. Well, certainly from what I do, it's done slightly different, differently to normally how things are done on, on West Coast with with you guys. It's, it um, LA tends to have used lots of subcontracted companies, so it's very the, the, the studio system when everything was done in house has completely gone now. So, well, pretty much pretty much gone anyway, um, as far as you know, what my world is concerned. Um, but in the in the UK, although there are lots of independent companies, with with the uh, when you get to the sort of scale, the sort of size of films that we you know we work on and and that we get to where you've got, I don't know, you can have you can have a standard prop making crew or a costume effects crew is between thirty to fifty guys. Um, it's it's the it's productions prefer to have an in house department. Um, and I prefer it as well because you th th there's uh, um, there's not profit involved. All the money spent is is directly you know it's production's own money to it. And then also you you every time I'll set up a a workshop, set up a crew, put a crew together. It's absolutely bespoke to what to what um, what the production wants to make. So you know you might have four guys. Uh, whittling on one time and then you might have 50 guys uh, you know with the computers and cnc machines and god knows what else that you know doing it doing another job it's actually specific to to what to what what's needed and edge you know edge of tomorrow was a was an that was probably one of the ultimate examples of that i don't think you could have done it you couldn't have done it as a outside uh, company you had to do it within within the studio within the film so that you so that you know for so many reasons not half just because you've you've got you need constant input and, and approval and sign off from uh, and access to 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 the filmmakers really and vice versa so you were also credited as a modeler for the exosuit and we were wondering what a modeler does because uh, you've been a supervising modeler and uh, a costume effects modeler and we were wondering how that differed from being a prop maker. Well, it's <laughs> boringly the reason the title modeler is to do with the tax office. That's the only thing because it's just like uh, that's the only because otherwise I call myself a costume maker and a prop maker, 
which is what I am. Uh, modeler is a is a uh, means that you don't get don't get um, uh, put into a horrific tax line that, that means you've got to pay a lot more tax. I mean, we still have to pay a lot of taxes, like everyone does, but it's just like it's from it's from the normal to ridiculous. And so uh, that's <laughs> sorry, that's a very unglamorous answer, but that's the reason why. Um, it's it's and it's it always it has been slightly difficult for me because we. As I say, each film we we do is so specific to each film. You know, we, uh, uh, you know, the the really with with Edge of Tomorrow, we 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 created the 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 exosuits. You know, they were they were working in conjunction with um, the production design and the costume design. And really, I headed up the team that that took took on took on the 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 job of building them and that that started from literally a blank piece of paper right through to doing uh, publicity um, filming you know two and a half years two and a half years later so it's it's yeah it was a it was a it was a project I did in the best senses it was just and that's really kind of in my mind is really what we do we take on we take on the challenge of uh, a script idea or principle or ethos that that comes from from a script rather than some other you know lots of other departments are very specific every time construction departments special effects departments visual effects departments they're always doing they're give or take they're always doing the same thing every time for us it's just like well uh, this time you're you're um uh, as you say you're making exercise next time you're making um cogsworth and and Lumiere and and lots of walking furniture and, and chandeliers. Next time you're, as I say, you're doing wands and wizards and brooms and things. So it's just like it's it's you know it pulls. And yeah, another time you're doing Batman suits and and hero stuff. So it's it's kind of everything is a is a is an engineering challenge, is a is a creative challenge, is a political challenge, is a you know personnel challenge, a you know person. You know, it's, it's all that kind of thing. But they're all they're all very different. So, not to get too specific, but before when you were talking about Phantom Menace, you talked about working on, like, the pod racers, and if you asked me yesterday, I would think that that is, like, 95% CGI, and I guess my question is, when you're working uh, on props, how do you balance what's CGI and what is going to be tangible, and how do you, like, balance that? Um... Again, it, it's 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 so specific to each film, and also um, the technology as it develops. You know, I mean, as what we were doing on Phantom Menace, we probably would do in a slightly different way now because they don't need that input, possibly, or maybe we might end up making more. Weirdly, um, I mean, always, you know, the, um, the one of the interesting things about doing a series of films on Harry Potter was a, was was watching the the massive change that that came about with the you know the the i wouldn't say the, the it's already there but the building up of confidence of that technology and i remember at the early stages everyone was very in, you know it was from our world and you know to, and lots of the classic worlds was very intimidated by it and think it was just like the end of their careers etc but i went on from the first film you know first harry potter of having a crew of about 15 by the last one having a crew of about 50 because there was so much visual effects required in the film, and it 
it it it allows it suddenly allows this massive capacity to of the film to visually get so much bigger and so much demand but also it puts demand onto all the other original departments to essentially up their game to really to, you know the, the vistas and everything are so much so much bigger so much more challenging um so it's it's actually i think it's it i mean it's completely changing well not completely changing but it's it's expanded the industry and people's expectation about what they want to see and i'm i'm glad you brought up harry potter because my mom and i are very very huge fans of the series and uh you know so i just wanted to ask how you ended up getting involved um you're i think you're uncredited for the first movie and then you've subsequently been credited on every other movie as well as the fantastic Beasts series so uh yeah you, you sort of spoke a little bit about the change and you know if you could just speak on that i, th- I need to get back and sort my imdb out it's just like they it changes periodically and, and because i don't look at it that often because you just don't you just realize why is that changing <laughs> It's so it's just like it's not a perfect system. It doesn't matter. But yeah, no, we did, we did, we um uh we did you know we did we did all of them. Sorry, I went off on a complete tangent there, and by doing that, I completely forgot the question. Could you could you ask me again? <laughs> Sorry, I do apologize. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Uh, I I was just asking how you ended up getting involved with it, and um how I mean, obviously that series went through a few directors. So if there was any change in that regard on your end yeah no it's it's it, it, um uh i t- so i got a really the, the how we came about doing potters was because we'd worked on a bond film called uh, uh the world's not enough the year before and uh there was a a supervising art director a guy called neil lamont weirdly the son of peter lamont who i mentioned earlier on and um he was the what they call the supervising art director so he's number two in the art department and um the uh he's under he was under you know, uh, uh, very famous production designer called stuart craig who really i think is probably more responsible more constantly responsible for the franchise than anyone else in a visual sense um but uh he he phoned me up one day just after we'd finished and it was not enough and he said oh we um uh, uh i've got this film the harry potter film i didn't know it, i didn't i mean possibly i might have said seen some of the news but obviously i, I uh, um my daughter at that point was only three years old so she so wouldn't have um really wrong wrong home so look i'm just starting on this, this film called harry potter uh, do you want to come up next week and have a meeting about prop making <clears throat> and i said yeah okay that's fine and on the on the on the bond film we'd i hadn't done the prop making i'd done uh, we built these um uh we'd done special vehicles as a bit so we'd we'd made these um these speedboats that had run they zoom around uh london waterways just tiny little jet boats um so i thought all right okay that's a bit odd i didn't i thought because i thought you would have asked a guy that had done the making of the props from the world's not enough to do it to do it again so anyway didn't think yeah right i can't i'll come up with it so i went up there the next next week and went into Leeds and studios walking up the stairs and bump into mark who did or had been made all the prop makes on on uh on this this bond film and i hadn't known mark that well and i thought oh great what's what's what you know thinking, oh, God, what's going to happen here um anyway neil took us in the room and he goes look we've got this film um i want to put the two of you together to give us so much to do 
and I really like what both of you are doing to jointly run the run the prop making. Um, so thank God, Mark was is still one of my closest friends. We still work together now. Was was such a gentleman. He wouldn't, you know, other guys might want to be. So we so we uh, sat down and figured out a crew um, and started started. Uh, started the the, um, the Potter series and Mark was with us for the first couple of films and then he went off and started doing some directing and then uh, went from there but you know that first meeting those for me I, th- I was over the MOOC and I thought I just had six months work I didn't um, uh, you know during that week between I'd read the book um, and it was exciting for a prop maker there's lots lots of lovely you know it's a great story and there's loads of really interesting things to make and you know it's a very prop heavy prop visual film so Fantastic. Didn't realize I, it would be ten years of employment. No, <laughs> I was just like, as you do, you just like think, oh crap, I've got a film to make. I think it would be eight films. Weirdly for me, it was exactly ten years. I started on the twenty first of June, finished on the twenty first of June, two thousand to two thousand ten. So it was just like, yeah, but yeah, you never, I never, never expected it to be to be and turn into what it was and then i don't think anyone did you know they hadn't written all the books that we ended up finally making turning into films but when we first started and we slowly caught up basically um uh and almost i think there was probably a subtle influence of the films for the later books just by the way that we're going about them so no i mean just but that's films that's i mean that's what's so lovely one of the things i absolutely adore about them working in the industry is that you just um it's everything is always so shockingly different in every way, you know, for everything you, everything you do and the subjects you do. I mean, you know, often I think, you know, we live in the, in the period of franchises and, and, and film, you always think film companies say, Oh, this is great. We only have to build it once and then we can just keep filming. And of course that's not the case at all. Yeah. Actually, you know, it's, it's, it's more intensive than ever, but, um, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's yeah, very interesting. So you mentioned your time working on the bat suit for the Dark Knight, and we were wondering mm. how that was, and if that played any role in your later work in the upcoming The Batman. Yeah, no. So, so I mean, the, um, while we were doing the Potter series of films, we didn't do those. That wasn't just the only stuff we did. In that period of ten films, with a film called uh, Sunshine, you say, Dark Knight, uh, and some other other things as well. I can't quite recall them over, over the period, but um, yeah. So Dark, I mean, Dark Knight was interesting because we we I had uh, uh, while we were doing doing the pod films, well, there was a costume supervisor who worked on on them. Uh, one of the potters guy called uh graham churchyard had who had worked on done the costume supervisor special effects costume supervising on all of the from the tim burton's all the way through and he he'd been very interested in what we were we were doing in the in the prop making department because i was like really pushing technologies and um the um uh, potters gave us this amazing opportunity to really uh, invest heavily in new processes and new ideas and the way that we mold stuff and cast stuff and make stuff and you know at that point a lot of digital technologies and, and rapid prototyping and machining and things like that all of all the stuff that was sort of coming online and it was just I always felt I always still do I feel that there's a 
you've always got to be so open to those processes and the, but the trick is to really pull them in and blend them with what you're doing you know if you can have a really good artisan that's that's combined with a a digital sculptor you know the the work the what comes out benefits from both both processes <clears throat> so it's all that sort of thing anyway so he was he was interested in how we're molding and he said look i've got this we've, we're just about starting dark night would you be interested in in making um making a bat suit for us and i was just like oh yeah yeah don't say no to things like that so yeah absolutely not really having a clue although it hadn't been the first costume i've made but nothing nothing on that level um so yeah and of course project like that you dive in and we learned i mean so much so much uh, about about how to do it and also develop stuff you know that they'd, they'd always been uh up to that point they'd, they'd always been foam latex casting so they've always gone down a really been heavily influenced by sort of creature effects and and their processes about how we go about it and i i markedly went about it in a different different way really and looked at it in a different way and tried to i always think myself really as a product maker really so so you just look at it a product and go right okay what if they were making the suit for real how would they do it how would that you know what's the character of the suit <clears throat> um and really tried in a practical sense to try and pull as much of that into it into the process as we could and that's to us that's how we we still do it now um um i i again dark knight is one of my favorite movies of all time uh as is many's but um i'm i've watched the behind the scenes stuff for that for the costume stuff for that uh many many times and i was wondering if there was a lot of r d for how to make because i'm pretty sure like chris nolan wanted the head to be able to turn which had yeah. previously not been able to be done and i was wondering was there a lot of r&d done on your department to figure out how to make that work well no i mean just to, to be honest we just said break the neck up into pieces <laughs> which is kind of what we did because you're making a suit of armor this is and and i remember to lindy hemming the, the costume designer who's you know we did talking about you know 1984 with and i worked with you know, we've done several things together and she's an absolute gem and she came up with that you know sort of idea of really breaking it up but it was based on the idea that say look with before okay so normally what happens with creature creature influence suits if you're making a suit of armor that has to be very dexterous and very difficult to make they tend to combine it all into one piece and rubberize it so it looks like a movie it doesn't but I always rail against that. I said, well, look, it, the, actually, the whole point, if you look at, I don't know, if, you, if you're ever in the UK, when you go to the Tower of London, there's some of Henry, uh, Henry VIII's original uh, Greenwich-built suits of armour. Now, if a full suit of armour of that period, um, you you were literally half of 1% of the of the country would be able to afford that. It would it would cost the the, the suit of armors was probably one of the most expensive piece of technology that you could buy then. But they break it up essentially this down to the skill of the armorers, but they break it up into into pieces. So Henry VIII's full set of armor would have I don't know anything up to four hundred to five hundred pieces made in, made into into that suit. So they very gently articulate and shut down themselves, very, you know, in that way. And so I thought, well, the bat suit in that sense was that's what we'd try and do. Just we're not. It's not a problem for us to subdivide it and cast those pieces in multiple pieces, you know, which is against it. So that's really what we did with, you know, I said to, to Lindy, I said, well, bring, you know, we can do that. We can 
we can cope with with subdividing it don't feel you need to combine everything we should do the opposite to cube articulation and movement which is what that bat suit was all about the idea was that he'd made a in batman begins he'd made he'd, he'd basically self-made and nick stuff from wayne enterprises to and sprayed it black to make it work this was right okay wayne enterprises make me a bat suit but i want it lighter i want it faster i want i want to sacrifice a bit of safety for dexterity and all that kind of thing Hence I, the I, was, panels. Oh, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you but i was just going to say it's crazy how your design process is literally a plot point in the movie well that's that's a cleverness of of, of no, no, I mean he's. A, I mean he is a, one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life, and he, he like, and he's very, very literal. Man. You know, if you watch his movies, he has to believe what he's making, so he has to convince himself, and he's a very difficult person to convince. Um, uh, you know, convince otherwise. So he he came around. He was very interested in what we did. You know, explaining some of the technology and showed him some of the milling and stuff we were doing. And he was—he probably interrogated us stronger than any other director I don't know, because um, he wanted to understand it so that he could go back in. And he—he he got that he wanted to, you know, there is practical practical sense in 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 wanting to to essentially said the head can turn. So, um, uh, you know, if you think about that, isn't it? You know, it's it's so that but, no, but that's the way he makes his movie tim burton's movie didn't matter it's the, it was no you know it was film noir it was it was all graphic images it was totally different ethos you know neither of them are wrong both of them are just as good but that's the way none of works uh, um moving back a little bit um uh, just because talking about making the suit has got me interested um when making the exoskeleton for or the exosuit for um edge of tomorrow i'm i'm pretty sure on the behind the scenes it said that that it's just a real suit and i mean you just said that you just built it but um how heavy is that and um how difficult is that to assemble because it it seems like a pretty complicated piece of machinery yeah it's again with what we're talking about with the dark knight suit is really what we came to with with um uh, with the ever with the exos suits, um, and you know, the, 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 again, you, you're building. You've, it's one of the classic examples. It's a character in itself. It's a character in the movie. So, it, you know, with me and Lee, you have to backtrack the story of how it ended up as it was. And it was a, it was a, uh, a clumsy. You know, they always uh, Doug Lyman, the director, always wanted the suits to be a clumsy, very fastly made piece of engineering just i mean if you i don't know if you're into history your second world war history but you look at how uh, you know if you look at military uh, equipment that was made um made at the, the you know for the for the for the um especially on the allies side because basically the germans have been building stuff for 10 15 years the allies apart from the spitfire have just been um uh, avoiding spending any money avoiding even thinking about making making anything at all so you know the the difference in technology at the beginning of the war was 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 vast. So, and the Allies stuff, you know, was was very quickly put together and uh, uh, and took a while really to to sort of catch up with how the Germans were were making stuff. So it was it was made you know to make good and and just enough to to get away with what the job was in hand. And I think that's that that kind of 
principle was what they wanted to show in the suit. So they were not a refined piece of engineering. They wanted to, and also if you I don't know if you read the the um, uh, the original base novel, uh, uh, all you need is kill. The same sort of ethos as, as applies. It's just a reaction of the world industry just making something to defend itself. That you know you cut corners off. Um, so. So yeah, so we so so that was a kind of general feel. So they had to have a clumsiness to them. They had to have a a lack of refinement, you know, to the car plant stuff really. Um, so we we uh, you know the weight thing was. I remember Tom, you know, having was loved talking about how heavy they were, and but the 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 weight was weight the weight was. Well, there were several reasons why there, were weight, there was weight in them. First of all, because uh, it took so long to design them that we had to we had to manufacture them in a certain way that we couldn't we couldn't do them all in carbon fiber and and light alloys and things like that. Not not the you know we had, essentially by the time we finished designing them they and signed off, we had nine weeks to make uh, initially eighty but one hundred and twenty suits of various types um, for filming. They had the big big. Um, landing scenes are right at the very beginning so we, it was an immense you know i got my crew got up to 170 people for that film to, to really pull that off um it was a it was a colossal on time because each suit had uh, about 320 cast components with another 150 either manufactured or or uh, sort of uh, purchased and supplied components you know bearings milled elements etc it was a you know we built a we built a proper assembly line um, to to pull it all off, do all the castings and do all that. It was it was an immense job. So you've got to you've got to give a little bit on that. And the so and also the suits were so when we first looked into the design and we looked at at um, different sort of um, um, ways of 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 you know there's lots of interest you know there's lots of development of different military and non-military um, aspects to exosuits uh, and exoskeletons so there's some really interesting um, um, uh, programs and 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 you know and projects really um, and uh, we ended up going down sort of paraplegic more than the military world because um, uh, if uh, there's one of the worst things uh, for a paraplegic to put up with what often to be honest um, gives them a shorter lifespan is the fact of sitting in a wheelchair constantly your body's not made for it you need to, you should you're made to be standing up you're made to be moving in a certain way so one of the big pushes as far as that is concerned is to is to have is to have an exoskeleton that that can operate that can move your legs because uh, if you think if you're paraplegic, essentially your skeleton is your muscles that are not working. It's not your it's not your bone structure. So there was you know at that time we went we went to Cambridge and 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 saw some stuff being built there, which was this, essentially a backpack and these these arm systems. So it's a backpack that you strapped on, um, and these articulating arms that, that essentially pushed your pushed and pulled your legs. A very good, quite a simple system actually quite quite clever so you had at that point you walked with sticks you had they had the thing moving your legs and you had at that point you had an, uh, an operator so you had a guy with you that was helping you walk but the 
the engineering and all the hip area and and the articulation for the legs we've got all we're really really interested in um and that's what we use a lot of that in the influence so really what the exosuits became in my mind was a puppet so really what you do is you stand in the frame and the frame the frame of the exosuit um, you stand in it you strap it onto your body and then as you as you're moving uh, as you're moving it you're puppeteering the the exosuit does that make sense so so yeah. you're yeah so so if you stood up straight there's no weight on you that you're articulating the legs of the exosuit is carrying its own weight it's only when you lift one leg up that you take the weight of the leg it's only when you lift one arm that you lift the arm etc does that make sense mm-hmm. so that's how they worked so they were heavy but it wasn't like you you, you had them you weren't carrying that weight all all the time it's a, it was a slightly odd experience it you know if you were exerting yourself or running hard then of course you take it with you but uh, but also uh, with that timescape but i think the weight helped a little bit anyway because it 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 meant that you if you had something very very light and and uh, movable uh, then it wouldn't have looked right anyway you wanted people clubbing around i mean we had these heavily we called them tanks so there was as well as the standard exosuits there was these heavily plated uh exosuits that had these big guns and the effects got we made we must have made about a dozen of them and there was one that the effects boys made which had a proper rigged gun so the, the gun uh pivoted up to its, its far i don't know if you remember the movie but there's a, the gun sort of sits up on the back of the backpack pointing vertically and it hits a button but this big massive like it's like a howitzer or 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 a, um uh, a, like a bazooka kind of gun <clears throat> that comes that levels up and fires so there's one of those and and that was the whole rig for that there was about 80 kilos um but i had a friend uh, who worked and worked at hans uh, henson's and he goes 80 kilos oh yeah that's the weight of big bird i got told me so so i i um whenever anyone was talking about you know talking about a suit and go yeah it's the same it's the same weight tom as as, as big bird so it's fine <laughs> just funny excuse for them to bloody use it so anyway but uh it's but then again that the guy that wore they, they found one big uh powerful stunt guy that wore that and he would rest just by standing he'd just stop and just give himself a rest and he could do about 10 paces stop right and so it was just like a no workout but i just have to ask just because tom cruise is my favorite actor if you have any tom cruise story <laughs> uh yes i have there's i have there's lots of tom cruise stories from that that he's he isn't i i have to say that he's first of all he's not what what the, the nonsense uh, that you that you see of him he's a he's he's he has gr- he has uh, the most passion i've seen in anyone for making movies he's just that's his that's what he wakes up in the morning that's what he goes uh, to sleep at night thinking about nothing else really he just loves he loves the process of movie making um, and he's a great uh advocate for the industry and and making the best pro- you know that you'd look at the mission impossibles and i think each film actually gets what other franchise that you you see and you think the sixth every- the sixth one is the best it is it just like it just gets <laughs> and that's him 
that's him saying we've got to do that we've got to up the game every time it's he's immense and you know on edge of tomorrow that the only the only way that the that that film got made was tom i mean the suits were tough things to wear and he he embraced them and he sold them and made them work and there wasn't you know there was lots of and a lot of the, a lot of the other guys that were wearing them were were not as passionate well initially were not as passionate and but they you know they knew they had to do it because they were watching how hard tom was doing it um and yeah so so he's uh so he's uh yeah he's you know he's he's uh his um passion for it was was amazing but also as a film i mean our, the first i mean we we had a big we had a we made a mock-up very early stages when we were doing the first initial designs we'd we'd shown tom um the first time we met him a mock-up we had a guy wearing a one of the, the original designs of the suits it changed quite a lot from that but um Dorchester hotel and then the next time about a month later he a month and a half later he turned up at leaves and studios and and he uh he uh well he did two things we had a we had a fitting with him so the first time he ever put the suit on him um and uh you know his it it, it he it took him about five minutes to really kind of build up the energy and chain you know, he's really pulling different barely sort of said anything the first thing he said after five minutes was, of course sweat pouring off my brow he said just said awesome this is fucking awesome man this is, and and then so you just you know you got there so so but he 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 came into the workshop and he it was almost like a i don't know it was like a political campaign i suppose but he came and he he met every single crew member and not just just sort of in a cursory way introduced himself shook their hand asked what they were doing and he went round even he was even on the on one of the engineering lays with the young guy and everything like that and and he although it's kind of maybe it's a people will think it's kind of obvious play but he it was uh it the, the effect it had on the crew was incredible you know the work the, the work rate just blossomed and it was the whole i know it was, it was still one of my favorite films to have worked on really because because it had it had a great team and christ we worked hard and it was just like some of the some of the sleepless nights you have and the and the and the uh, um uh yeah sort of um the icky icky moments when my heart was absolutely in my in my throat of just uh of um of getting it you know getting it done but yeah so yeah he's a very he's a very impressive filmmaking you know i'm loved you know even if i'd never do a film with him again i'm glad that i have done one i've had that chance to be able to do at least one I hope I do another one. I'd love to do another film, but it's it's. Uh, we hope so yeah. too. Um, mm. I just had to ask one last thing about Edge of Tomorrow, which was um, I'm pretty sure the the movie sort of uh, went through a lot of reshoots because it was like figuring it out as they went along, and I was wondering if that process sort of affected your work in any way, or whether they kind of had what they needed to play with, and you, you your job was sort of done by that point. No, I mean, we were with it. We were, t I mean, t I was a, in the UK, I was a second person employed. They produced, a, they employed the local producer and the first person they, I was a second person employed and I was with that literally to the publicity. I remember, I mean, I remember on, what was it, Christmas? Oh no, it was just before New Year's Eve. They, they, the film made, they finished Mel, 
filming and they were going to planning to do publicity shoot uh, in the UK for the start of the publicity junkets, I think. And, uh, uh, and we'd been asked to put a, to get a few suits ready to, so that they could put journalists into them. They had a, they had a sort of, they worked up this idea of doing sort of allowing, um, film journalists to sort of press junket to come and have a go in suits and play around. And, um, uh, and which is fine. We kind of, we always do something, you know, and I didn't with no special, but anyway, the phone rang and it was Cassie, Tom's assistant, um, saying, Tom, I want to talk to you about it. And just like, all right. Okay. <laughs> Cause he's that deep. He's that into, you know, he's, you know, he, he found out the usual pleasure how to do it. And then he just went into, yeah, it's gotta be good. You, you do realize how important it is to be, this has got to, you know, in your aspect, you've got to look really good and, and absolutely got it. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't even, I haven't even had producers that have phoned me up and said, but he's that invested in it. Do you know what I mean? He's that, he's that on the ball that he wants to make sure that every single aspect of the, the film is. Yeah. I, I listened to a podcast called Light the Fuse and it's, it's all about like the making of the mission movies and every story I've heard about him is basically he's operating at such a high level that he forces everybody else to just yeah, do better. Yeah. yeah. But I love that. I love that. You know, it's, it's, I've, you know, I've worked with really difficult guys and, 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 and temperamental people and, and what have you. And I don't mind it as long as you're doing it for something that's good. I mean, you know, we did gravity and, and Alfonso, um, Caron is, uh, a very difficult director to work for a very, you know, but it's because he's passionate and because he has a very, very, well, Chris Nolan, Chris Nolan is classically, he's a, I mean, if you were not, <laughs> you know famously he's he's had people you know removed from set because they're holding up filming because he's standing on set at seven o'clock in the morning and if someone is holding up the set he hits the bloody roof you know he's so productive and this is this is this, you know those the, the filmmakers are there they, they are they spent a long time thinking about this it. their baby they want it to be as absolutely as good as possible and I'd much rather the work of someone like that than someone that's that's just just been you know sort of pulled on, signed a contract for a lot of money, and it's just it's just taking a, taking a shekel. So it's um, it's yeah yeah good you know good stuff comes from hard work you know doesn't doesn't that just happen? So do you think you could speak on your time spent on Gravity for a little bit? Just because I think that would be a unique experience in that the whole thing is pretty much CGI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what everyone thinks. That's what I thought. That's what I said. Oh, okay. So when the producer on that was a guy called David Heyman, he did all the, he did all the Potters. And at the end of the, at the right at the end of the Potters, I, I bumped into him one day and chatting. Hey, dude, yeah, exactly. And, uh, uh, and I said, oh, I just said uh, in passing, I said, oh, you're doing a, a science fiction film, you know, doing a space film. And he said, oh, yeah, but don't worry. Unfortunately, he said, there's nothing for you on it. He said that we're going to get the, get the, um, it's all completely CG generated, the whole thing. So what, what, um, what they do is they're going to get the two actors in and get Sandra Bullock and, and George Clooney in. They'll get him into a mocap studio somewhere in London, possibly. They're going to film all the head, film them for three weeks, just their heads, the headshots, and then they're going to CGI the rest. It was just like, wow, wow, okay, well that's fine. Well, good, good luck, David. So, yeah, that's fine. Anyway, so about three months later, I get a phone call saying, uh, "Could you, could you do us a, a, a um, just make us a, a like a 
a faux uh, Sawyer's capsule, just a just a wooden mock-up of the, so we can get an idea of the size and scale. Yeah, sure. So we did that. Uh, anyway, three months later, I had a crew of ninety people making all the costumes and making all the sets and the proxy sets. Um, you know that the the inside of the Sawyer's capsule is all us. The costume Sandra's wearing is us. The uh, the Chinese uh, um, oh god, what's it called? Just the name just put out in the minute. Xinyang, I think it's called uh, the capsule, which is a Sawyer's equivalent. You know, equivalent. Um, the all the proxy exterior stuff. So anything that they so they they still filmed and wired uh, wire worked all the moves etc. So we had to make proxy real uh, uh, representations of all the exterior of the ISS, interior elements of the ISS. It just became it was just massive, 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 um, and uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's so there was a lot. You know, oh, the other thing was is that when the capsule, when you see the capsule land in the water right at the end, the seems to land in the water. That was a model shop. That was all the parachutes. We built the parachutes. We'd made a, th a third scale model. And we had we had proper parachutes made. Uh, it lands in the water, and then the parachutes all fall fall into the water. Done in a reservoir outside of Heathrow. Um, uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a it was a massive <laughs> it was a massive job. But that's what I love. It's just that it, again, it was just like they'd gone with it with a concept, and then the reality of what they wanted to do was just like well, we do this bit, this bit, and also the way Alfonso wanted wanted to make. I mean, there was a there's um. I don't know if you remember in a movie, but he and uh, also sort of backtracking of it. Did you guys know Alfonso's film *Children of Men*? Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. So there's a there's a shot where the the, the characters are in a in a sort of uh, a, a car, like a like a family car, MPV or whatever, um, and the camera pirouettes. From, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, mm -hmm. he stays outside, but it sort of pirouettes between the driver and the and the passenger. And so they made this amazing car where basically this, the windscreen came out, the door came out, and it sh but it came back into the car as the camera panned. So he'd done that. So he he basically came to us and said, well, can we do that with the Shinzu capsule? So the dream sequence in Gravity where George comes in through the the, the door, sits in the capsule, uh, talks to Sandra, and then disappears, is all one shot done in camera, with no visual effects. So we made the Shinzu capsule, but we also put it all on track. So it all the front of it was on rails, so that and it broke into sort of like orange cut segments. So as a camera pan between the two of them, panels were pulling out to allow the camera in and then shutting behind it. So that scene where, where if you remember that it goes into Sandra and then the camera pulls out and George isn't there, he literally just steps out. So we're able to open the capsule up. He steps out and shut it behind him. So yeah, and and you know, so for all of that, so and this, you know, the the the, the frame store and the guys that did Gravity. I mean, that was, you know, they well well deserved the Oscar they got for it. But there was also little elements in there that was was in camera that was and more than people knew. But there's it. There you go. But maybe that's the best compliment of all: the fact that you guys all think it was generated and then. But some of it, I'm sitting there going, "Well, no, not we made that, and we made that, and we made that." But you don't think it's real; you think it's that good. So, anyway. Um. So, 
Speaking of spaceships that fall apart, you worked on a movie <laughs> in which one big ship falls apart. Um, can you talk about Titanic? Oh, oh my God. Titanic, yeah, the ultimate scientist. So Titanic was was the first first prop prop making gig that I ran. Um, oh. And we made it we made a load of stuff in the UK that got shipped out. And my uh, my dad went out and uh, looked after stuff out there, but he he asked me to uh, uh, to look after the making of all all the stuff in the UK. So we had a whole load of interior bits, light fittings, um, uh, radiators. Oh God, we did, what else did we do? Radiator intercom systems. We did all the stuff for the bridge, the bridge telegraphs with those. Which are the the old ding 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 sort of half speed ahead kind of control pods, and they were enormous on Titanic, absolutely colossal, uh, and loads of things like that. I have a funny little story with Titanic. We went, we got asked to make a wall light, a three armed wall sconce wall light, and um, we looked at it. And it was very, it was very, uh, very deep Edwardian design, like the whole of the interior of, of Titanic was, and. Uh, one of the guys who were working with said, oh, there's a really good light shop in Soho in London that does a sort of lots of supplies to uh, Harrods and places like that. He said, it's kind of like a slightly wholesale place, but he said, they might well be able to have something that looks really close to it, saves you having to make it. Maybe you can mold it, you know, you can mod modify it and change it a bit. And so, yeah, okay. So I was going up there anyway, so I went into and found this address and, uh, and it was a funny little shop and it was like, it was, the front of it was like going back in like 150 years, like something out of Dickens, knocked on the door. All the all the windows were sort of frosted. It was really, it was a rangsack shack kind of building. Couldn't open the door, so knocked on it. This guy came and opened the door, went in. And it, although it was a light shop, there was one light that actually had a bulb in it that was on. Um, and it was a tiny little side office to one side. And it was just rammed. It was, it was no, it was just like... Uh, there was no, didn't see any system, just full of uh, gilded lamps and lights and freestanding lights and just anything you could you could think of, really light um, light fittings, but just like a some sort of really unkept warehouse. And so I went into this corner room of the office and I showed him. I had a picture of the of the of the lamp and I said to this guy, I said, "I'm looking for this this wall sconce. You wouldn't have anything that's kind of similar, maybe in a similar period that we could buy." And he goes. Uh, I tell you what, leave me a pic. He said, "Go and have a quick wander around." And he said, "I'll have a look through through catalogue and see if we can find something." So I went over. Anyway, this 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 shop was like a rabbit warren. It went on and it had about must have. It felt like it had about twenty floors. Getting like something out of Tim Burton. It's rickety old staircase. There's tiny little rooms set up, just absolutely rammed with anything you could think of that to do with antique lights. Um, anyway, I wandered around and came back, couldn't find anything, came back to him and he goes, oh yeah, and he had a big dusty old ledger out and he goes, yeah, I thought I recognised it. He goes, we made 120 of these, 110 went on the boat, we've got four left. And he goes, are you joking? <laughs> so they made the original, so I just brought the last, one of the last ones that was left, just moulded it and put it back on the boat. Sorry, I just, I just wanted a silly Titanic story. So that's no, that's but, awesome. Yeah. That, um, but yeah, I mean, that was an amazing film. That was, and then Cameron, you know, James Cameron was was just on a on a, again absolute passion trip with making that. And they made they made it out of Mexico. They'd built a, a 
a um, a sea tank. So they build it right on the coastline, and basically they flood it with every time there's a high tide, you're able to fill the fill the tank. Uh, and they built the sh originally they built the the half the bow and and the uh, starboard side of the boat. They eventually ended up building the whole of the stern, the front, and the whole pretty much a whole thing. Um, and they, as it sank, they basically had they had a steel frame inside that they would they would basically cut the bottom of and set it into its next position, set it into its next position as it slowly sank. But um, incredible bit of engineering, absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, so amazing film to work on. So next, uh, I wanted to ask about 1917. I believe you worked in the oh, yeah. costume department. And I was wondering, I th think it would be interesting to work in the costume department on a war film in particular, partly because for it to be accurate, pretty much everyone has to be dressed the exact same. <laughs> it is. Well, we, t we, we built all the helmets for that. It was generally the Tommy helmets, you know, the, the, the there's, there's classic English, English uh, helmets, which actually the, the, the Americans used till 1930. They had, they, they used exactly the same helmet. Um, uh, and yeah, they, the, so, um, there's a costume supervisor I've worked with, uh, for many years, a guy called Dave Crossman, and he, we did all the Star Wars together. So all this, the latest, um, uh, Force Awakens and last sort of the last latest three and the two spin-offs, Solo and, and Rogue, um, uh, we, we were doing those films together for five years, um. But David's speciality is is uh, military uh, military costumes. He's an absolute expert and, and a master with them. And the subtleties of those of, of um, military um, uh, costumes is 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 so deep. I mean, the, he did he did he did films like Valkyrie and things like that. And and so he you know he really he really knows his stuff. And. Um, not that I suppose half of it would probably ever come over, but the but the you know the British uniforms, by example, in those films, there was every there was obvious you know everyone looks the same, but none of them are. There's 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 tabs and there's color coded uh, elements and and badges and, and brooches that 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 delineate exactly what you're doing, where you're from, what area you're supposed to be, and there's, there was a whole mad system of. Of different between all the regiments and 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 they all are all different of course classic british way and none of them really talk to each other they just have their own systems so it's it's so deep and so confusing and so he spent all that time doing that so we had this essentially the pretty easy job of of um of just making the helmets so i love that film such a good film and again one shot you know all in theory done done in one shot but sam mendes is 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 fun you know incredible filmmaker absolutely amazing filmmaker when he's on form mm -hmm. um so sort of nearing the end uh one last movie i wanted to ask you about was uh working on ready player one um mm. and for spielberg because that seems like it'd be pretty epic yeah i mean that was we were doing costume stuff on that we weren't doing prop making so we just had these the um now I'm going to drop a ball, and I can't quite remember what they're called now. But the memory suits, etc., and also the the main uh, baddie character—I can't remember his name now. He has a, he has this like the ultimate um, um, VR suit that he's uh, 
that he wears and so we've we built those and we're playing lots of clear casting and and encapsulated effects and things just to try and get a bit of tech into into them so yeah yeah that was uh that was my only spielberg film that's the only one i've ever done with him um and it was fairly distant i know i mean it's of course these massive visual effects um uh um uh, task really it was quite interesting because he they had they had a lot of ILM guys on this. They had these big mocap stations they built at Leavesden Institute at Leavesden. So a lot of ILM guys came over and they were they were, they had um, motion captured. You know they were using sort of so um, actors would have uh, VR sets on them and all that kind of thing so they could see what they're doing. A lot of it was caught that way, but uh, of course. Spielberg loves, does a lot of stuff on the day. He'll turn up, all right, I want to do this, 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 and this, this. He'd have really, really quick, you know, he's an incredibly quick maker. But of course, they've been spending months pre planning shots, and then he'd come in on the day and just completely change them. And I could, I know, I hear there's horror stories of, of, of them desperately trying to keep, keep in front of him as, as he was doing what he always does. So, uh, yeah, it could be too clever sometimes, really. But, so, yeah. Oh, sorry, I um, I, I I didn't mean to interrupt, but I have a no, I have w- one more question if you don't mind. Mm. So jumping back to Batman, I know in superhero pictures in general they'll have like five or six suits, like one for the wide and one for the combat, and and so on and so forth. And I was wondering, like, by at the end of the day, like how many bat suits you actually had to end up make or design. Well, there you go. So, I mean, if every see. When we did Dark Knight, I remember we made 25 suits and they only used nine of them. And um, because the way that we'd gone about it, you know, before um, uh, there was a a lovely costume dresser, the senior costume dresser, a guy called Dane Murch, who had had done all the the sort of later, um, like he did the George Clooney one, but he'd done the dressing on most of the bat suits. And uh, on the, the George's film, they... They, the, the suits would last one shot. They were latex. They were so delicate that they'd nip and they'd tear constantly. So they had a factory constantly making them and having to constantly replace chess pieces, you know, every time, the cow and everything. So, but our stuff would just, you know, because it's a urethane-based product, generally, it's just as tough as, tough as, tough as boots. So we certainly, when one of the big things we did with, when we started on Force Awakens with the Stormtroopers was with, with the right account and try and get as much color into the casting so we don't have to paint them because the original ones you know the original classic troopers were were vac forming so they were vac form plastic so the plastic was white and they used that so they didn't have to paint it so i kind of although we were casting in urethanes that the suits we um they all had the color in them so the other thing with that is that then you could you could rubberize the pieces so we ended up not you know we didn't make a close-up shot suit and a stunt suit we just made one suit and the suit was capable of doing both jobs so you were able to make you know obviously with with on star wars originally we made 80 stormtroopers for force awakens um but they could be hero or stunt so i try and do that i try and put invest as much in it to make the suits as decorous as we can i mean you do get special you know you obviously get special requests for different things we made a whole on um, uh, Rise of Squ- Skywalker, we made a completely foamed R two D two. We 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 made all we made Anthony's suit, um, his original, you know, 
obviously got him back in by that point he was in his late 60s so we were able to really improve his suit as far as, as far as his comfort level was concerned um uh, but the ultimate was that was to make it completely like a foam I don't know what you like a foam onesie basically for a couple of stunt suits but not for him but for stunt suits but yeah so it's yeah you kind of you know there's this every film is different every film has a request um sorry i kind of lied by saying it was the last question but um <laughs> was was what what was that methodology carried out into justice league uh because uh you worked on that so i, I was but uh that those suits seem kind of a little bit more in the vein of like the tim burton-esque like less about yeah, practicality I mean, t- t- we the thing with Justice League is in the costume sense because we did the prop making and the costume making on that, and the the costumes we inherited a lot, a lot of costumes on that. So on Batman versus Superman, you know, there's there was a lot of guys established, um, the designs established on on that previous suit, and also some of the suits. I mean, like Ben's suit, the, the bat suit was essentially there was a few more made of that, but they just used the suit from the previous film. So it was only things like the Flash and, and Aquaman that we um, that we scratch made that were our sort of films. Uh, and of course, we're, we're doing Flash. That's one of the things we're doing at the moment. We're doing Flash's suit for new Flash film. <laughs> Latest project. Uh, Trent, do you, do you think it's time to ask the big question? Sure. Uh, the last question we like to ask our guests is, what's the last great thing you watched? What's the last great thing you watched? I'm watching and a can- great thing. Oh, sorry, go on. <laughs> I was just going to say, it doesn't have to be a first-time viewing. It can be a rewatch that you found new beauty in. Yeah, I did, oh, God. I, I just, we just watched, uh, just watching something now, actually, this weekend. Just watch it now. It's a classic box set thing of just, like, we'll do one. And, and it's called The Terror. It's a BBC thing about um, two uh, ships, Victorian... Uh, um, exploratory ships, science ships, or like navy ships now, and all the rest of but they're trying to find the Northern Passage. And uh, it's got, well, I can find the direct, the actor's name. Do you see Chernobyl? Do you see, did you watch Chernobyl last year? Did you see that? on? I, I did I, not. I, I'm I'm really holding out to watch that one. I know it was a big it, deal, and it had like 100 on Rotten Tomatoes. It's, it's one of the, I'd say it's probably now, it's definitely in my top five Chernobyl, and it was definitely the best film of last year, or series, you know, whatever. It was it was brilliant filmmaking. Anyway, the, the lead character in that is in is in this, and he's just oh, got such great presence. But yeah, it's it's a it's a good old school. It's an old spine chingler. It's a bit of a it's it's. I'm gonna have to try and get into it, but it's beautifully made, and it is you know these two ships get stuck in the get stuck in the ice up there, and and it's just really how everything just implodes, and um, then they're getting picked off by this massive polar bear that you're not quite sure you never really see it so you don't know if it's a real thing or whether it's a spirit of a of a of a eskimo that they accidentally kill and i, I don't know it's just it's just good filmmaking do you know what i mean you sit there and you and you feel entertained so yeah that but that's you know that's today but this is a little bit of a tangent but just out of curiosity uh, obviously the pandemic is having like a, a pretty universal negative effect on theater chains universally universally but what is uh like what is the theater industry like in the uk like is it especially during these times <laughs> it's i mean it, you know it's that all of the, anything to do with 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 
sort of hospitality and, and theatres, you know, proper theatre going is decimated at the moment, absolutely decimated. Um, uh, so, but the weird thing is that I've, I've never been as busy as I have been since we, we came back in August last year uh, to finish off Fantastic Beasts and uh, and uh, Vengeance and uh, the new Batman film. Um, and uh, it's the studio is rammed, absolutely rammed. Um, productions are globally, and you cannot get into studios at the moment. So I think it's interesting I'm seeing I'm not seeing for you guys in the states cinema is such a such a big thing and such a cornerstone of classic filmmaking um and it's a big thing here you know big thing in Europe big, even China and places of that is it's a it's a big part but it's it's you know I think the big production companies are smelling change are seeing you know Netflix the the profit and the money that that Netflix and Amazon are making everyone's trying to get onto that bandwagon so we're, I think we're just about to go into another cycle of, of big change. So I don't often change is kind of intimidating. It's a bit like when I talk about the potters and the visual effects at time where it's just like it's this big, this big thing in a room that you just don't know what it's going to do next or what's how it's going to affect your life. But uh, it's you know maybe we maybe you will not be making the choice so much to go to cinemas. Or you go to cinemas for a completely different experience than you do do now. Who knows? I mean, you know, the technology is constantly changing and constantly having an effect. And I, th I think we're into that. We don't know whether there will be such a thing as a cinema in ten years' time, or whether you're going to do it all from home. But there's a, there is a there is a wonderful. I still remember my dad taking me to the Empire and Leicester Square to watch to go to the cruise show or the, uh, of the Spy Love Me. And you sit in a room with the people who worked on it, and you, and you t I still remember that experience of watching that movie in that environment. And you, you know, with really good films sometimes are are seen in the collective, are seen as a theatrical experience. You can't get that at home. So it's, I think it's just about choice and about how, um, and really as long as long as long as film companies can make money out of it, obviously that's the important thing, and people want to do it. So. I don't know. Who knows? Or we'll all be we'll all be sitting at home with VR masks on, watching it on that. Who you just don't know. Or maybe all of it. It's, you know, the reality is probably is everyone doing different things. You know, my generation might still want to do cinema a bit more than you know, like my daughter's generation or something. Who knows? So it's it's there's always there will always be that aspect in filmmaking. Always constant change, constant development of of, of it in its in its in its in so many different ways so i don't know interesting times as long as we get to still make these incredible follies that's the important thing as far as i'm concerned yeah i think uh that's a great place to end our discussion trent yeah that feels like a great natural conclusion thank you pierre bohanna for coming on he's worked on a bunch of films that we just talked about um thanks so much for your time a pleasure guys and listen keep the passion up i love it's lovely that you still love love films and all it's and all they are so uh, thank you thank you for the opportunities bill to allow me to bang on for so long well 
that interview sure was great. I really liked it. Did you, Parth? I was a fan. We were both there the whole time, and I couldn't have done it without you. And we couldn't have done it without our guest, Pierre Bohanna, the costume modeler for Edge of Tomorrow and a bunch of other cool stuff. He was really the most important element. I would say so. Uh, He was super fun to have on. We were really glad his uh we we were able to talk with him the internet connection wasn't great but we managed to pull through um parth and i had to refrain from just interrupting this very successful smart man like because of the connection issues like with better internet we'd be stomping all over him but we, we just exactly we we tend to think we know better than our guests and um the internet really humbled us so next week we will be discussing, you know, our film, our chosen movie, Edge of Tomorrow. Right, right, right. Our second Doug Lyman picture. Um, mm-hmm. And our first our first real breaching of Tom Cruise. Am I, am I wrong? Uh, no, I think that's right. And I think, I think we should just leave everyone anxiously awaiting that they know that parth is gonna is gonna take off his jacket roll up his sleeves and he's gonna get neck deep in some tom cruise back and forth i think it's undeniable uh yeah and i think the only place where you can get your neck deep parth content is craft services um i mean that's that's where i get my content from you trent well, if I want Tom Cruise stuff, usually I'll just, like, Google Tom Cruise. And if I want Parth stuff, I'll just, like... Call me? I'll, yeah, I'll just contact... I don't have to... And, t- and, like, just tell me to, like, whisper sweet sweet nothings into But if your I want to combine these interests, there's really only one place. And, okay, and okay. it's your favorite streaming app. Um, whatever that may be. Insert streaming app here. Spotify, Apple Music. Peacock. Need I say more? Uh, additional examples, but that's where Parth and Tom Cruise intersect. All right. Well, I think it's time to end our episode. You can listen to our discussion next week, and maybe we'll have a fun guest the week after. Who knows? We'll see. Who knows what we'll Let's talk about? Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I think it's going to be Spider Man. All right. Goodbye. Maybe Spider Spider Man week. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.